Well, let's get underway. Why don't I lead us in another short prayer that God would help us to focus our tired minds this morning on his word and that his word would change and transform us to his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that in the power of your spirit, you would use it to transform us and change us, that we might become the likeness of Christ, that we as your people together might more and more reflect his great glory and his character and passions and convictions. We pray because we long to be the people you have made us to be in him. And we pray, Father, that you would overcome our tired and weary bodies this morning for your sake and glory and kingdom. Amen. It's a good to have traditions. And we have a tradition at EU Annual Conference, and it is this. Um, I saw a tweet this morning from uh, an EU graduate uh, who finished last year and who came and visited us again on Wednesday night, which was great to see her. And she tweeted, she said... Um, Thinking of all those tired students at hashtag Ancon11 who are standing up during Rowan Kemp's final talk. As we have a tradition that is, I know that many of you uh, embraced the foolishness of your youthfulness and stayed up uh, maybe a bit too late last night. And as someone, I think it was Peter, was sitting next to me at breakfast this morning, and he said, you know, it seems like a good idea at the time. <laughs> so we have a tradition that on the final morning at Friday during the talk, I know that it's hard work. So if you're feeling weary at any point this morning, and you might go, well, that's right now, stand up, move to the edge, stand around the edge and just stand for a while and listen and focus, okay? And then if you need to sit down again, find a seat near the edge so don't sort of disturb people in and out, in and out, in and out. But in all seriousness, if you're feeling tired, do something about it, right? Don't just sit there and be lazy. Actually attend to the Word of God because what a privilege it is for us to meet together and have His Word with us, right? So let's, because there are Christians around the world who would who would long to be here. So let's not waste the opportunity. You're feeling weary? Do something about it, okay? No one's going to worry, no one's going to care, just be proactive, all right? That's our little tradition. It's a bit weird, but it works. So let's go with that. Uh, my other little comment was, um, many of you might be a bit distressed that there seems not to be another instalment of our drama. <laughs> this incredible, involving experience that we've had of Philip and Tallulah, the wonderful Philip, the beautiful Tallulah, and the enigmatic Marie... And I know that you all thought, well, I mean, surely there'll be a final instalment where, where, where Philip and Tallulah will get together. I mean, myself, I was actually thinking that the final instalment would be the resurrection of Marie. <laughs> that would be a mighty ending. But alas.
page 48. Page 48. I started out this week on Monday morning talking about how for most of us, for most of us, even as Christians, the church is not the main game. It's part of our Christian life, but it's not central. It's like the medicine that we take because we're told it's good for us, though it's hard to see why, and we don't like it much. And that's how we regard church. Now, I hope, as we've opened the Bible together this week, that that view has changed for you. That now you've actually got solidly in view the place that the church has in the great purposes of God for all of humanity. And not the church in abstract, the church as you experience it. The church that you come to, that you are gathered together with people in around Jesus Christ. The amazing role that this church has in God's plans. You've started to see the privilege, the joy of being part of Jesus' church. And so maybe now when you hear or say one of the historic Christian creeds, the lines about the church, I hope, will be richer for you in meaning. You can see uh, the line about the church from the Nicene Creed there on your page, page 48. We believe in one holy, Catholic and apostolic church. Now, I don't know when you've been, you know, if you're in a church which is in the habit of saying that or or affirming that in some sort of way, whether at times you've gone, I'm saying this, I don't really know what I'm saying. May I just say that's always a problem? You shouldn't affirm things you don't actually know, whether, whether you think they're true or not. You should always make the effort to find out, what am I saying here? What does this mean? Don't be lazy in, your, in what you're affirming as, as a belief, right? What does this mean? I think now, given the, sort of the, the time we've spent in the Word this week, we can start to under, get some of the richness out of that. What does it mean when we say we believe in one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. One. There is only one true church. The one true church is the church gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ. The church that He is building on the rock of the confession of who He is. That He's the Christ, the Lord, the Son of the living God. There is no church other than that church built on the rock of that confession around Him. There's one church. It's a holy church. Jesus' church is to be a holy nation, a people who reflect the holiness of God who saved us. So we live life in singular worship of the one true God. That's seen in our faithful perseverance in His ways. That's seen in the unlikely joy we have because Jesus, our head, is Lord. And in that way, we are not like the world. We are holy, even though we're in the world and even though we're for the world. We are a holy people, a holy nation belonging to God. We're one holy Catholic church. 
Now, this is where many Christians get a bit stuck, especially uh, if you're not in a Roman Catholic, a Roman Catholic church. What do we mean by Catholic here? It gets a bit confusing. We're talking here about the Catholic church with a small c, not the Roman Catholic church, capital R, capital C. The word Catholic here, with a small c, just means literally according to the whole. According to the whole. It's a way of saying universal. We believe in one holy universal church. But the word is more than just universal. Sometimes our churches like to swap out Catholic and put in universal. And I can understand that that's, that's not bad. But universal doesn't quite capture everything that's in the word Catholic. Because the word also has a sense of trueness or orthodoxy. We believe in, in the one church that is the true church. It's un, the universal true church. That's what the word Catholic is signifying. There's one true universal church. One true universal church, holy that is apostolic. So we saw this on Wednesday night. The one true church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. But it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We rely on their authoritative apostolic testimony captured for us in Scripture. And our fellowship with Jesus is only in fellowship with them, their fellowship with Jesus. And we are a church. We're the assembly, the gathering. We physically gather together in all of our local co- gatherings, our local congregations, whether they're big or whether they're small, but irrespective of their size, we are all part of the heavenly gathering. We are outposts of the heavenly. We are adventurous colonies of those gathered by Jesus to live with him as Lord in the world for the world. That's who we are, the church. And I hope as we come to the end of the week that you can say, I believe in the church. Not in the way that you believe in Jesus as Lord. You don't put your trust in the church You don't give your life to the church. That's actually putting the body where only the head should be, if you know what I mean. We put our faith, our trust in Jesus alone. We give our life to him alone because he alone is Lord and Saviour and Redeemer, the Christ. So we give ourselves to him alone, but because we put our faith in him, we believe in his body, the church. And because we've given our life to him, we expend ourselves in serving his people in gracious love. We do believe in the church, in what God is doing in the church as the body of Christ. We believe 
what God is doing through the church, growing a people that will be his new humanity that will outlast even the present universe. The question with which then I want to finish today is this. Does the church have a future? And it's uh, all too easy to find critics of the church, certainly out there in the world, plenty of critics, but you actually don't have to even go that far. Often we are the most relentless critics of the church. And many in the wider world have been prophesying the demise of the church for hundreds of years. So what future does the church have? Well, the first thing to say is that it is a weak church. It is a weak church. But we have a powerful God. Have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. Paul writes, Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. God displays His great power by choosing the weak, choosing those who the world says, you are weak, you, we despise you. Jesus' church is a church of humble, repentant sinners, not necessarily a church of the wise and the powerful in the world's eyes. But God chooses the weak, the faltering, the insecure to display His great power. So we will be a weak church. You should not expect people to walk into church and say, wow, you guys are awesome. Look how clever, look how talented, look how impressive you are. Oh, you've blown all my conceptions of God out the window. And then we go, yeah, that's because we're Christians that we're awesome. Friends, that's just playing the world's game, isn't it? And I don't mean football. That's playing the world's game. Look how impressive we are. Look how clever, how talented we are. We want to be impressive in the world's eyes. We want to be hashtag awesome church. We think that it is by being triumphalistic, by being impressive in the world's eyes, that we will win the world. Okay, we're not an impressive church, but that was impressive. <laughs> but think about it for a moment. You know, when, 
when in your, I'll be, in your and my arrogance, we come away from church gathering on a Sunday and we go, oh man, you know, it's just so embarrassing. That singing was, poof, the sermon. Man, just, you know, like, it was just, I'm so glad knowing, you know, who's not a Christian came. You know, you catch yourself doing that? Because we're convinced if we're impressive, if we're slick, that'll win the world to Jesus. Actually, you know what the New Testament says about the outsider who walks into church? What will impress them? What will actually really make them go, sit back and go, whoa. The New Testament says what it is. It's not the talent that's on display. It's not the amazing sound and light show. The two things that I can think of that it mentions are first, the thing that will strike them is Christians' love for each other. And may I say, that's got nothing to do with gifts. That's got nothing to do with talent, does it? We are all empowered by the Spirit to love. The first thing that will impress them is they go, look at the way you guys love each other. Something is going on here. You really are these followers of this person, Jesus, aren't you? In the way that you really love like he loves. Like, that's the first thing, the love. The second thing the New Testament points to is it's when they hear the word of God proclaimed in the midst of God's people. So Paul says it there in 1 Corinthians 14, it's not on your page, but in 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about you know, prophecy and um, tongues, and the thing he says is, it's at the moment when the word of God is spoken in an intelligible way, within the community, as the church is speaking to each other the word of truth in love, at that moment when the unbeliever is there in the midst, they will be convicted of sin. And the secrets of their heart will be laid bare. And they will say, God is in your midst. It's not the awesome talent. It's not the fantastic welcoming. It's the love that they see and feel. It's the word of God that they hear, not just from the front, but as each part does its work, speaking the truth in love. So we are weak and we are unimpressive. And as weak and as unimpressive as your church is in your own often infected worldly mind, it's the love and the word that will bring people to the point where they say, God is powerfully at work here in real ways. And it's in fact through this reality of your church gathering that God displays his wisdom to everybody. Not just the unbeliever who might happen into your, into your gathering, but it's through, you, through that gathering, characterized by those things, that he displays his wisdom to the demons. Ephesians 3, 8-12. Although I am the very least of all the saints, writes Paul, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ. 
and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purposes that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. So, through your not-so-impressive Sunday night gathering of 15 people, where the singing sounds pained, and the, the sermon is faithful, but, you know, if not brilliantly dynamic, in that body of Christ, as you serve one another in gracious love, as you speak the word to one another, as you seek to be his new humanity and holiness and joy, God says to the demonic powers, he says, see, look here. Look at this body of my son, 15 people. See how they live. See my wisdom. He chooses the weak to shame the strong, to make his wisdom known, his wisdom and his power. So let's push down on this a bit and talk about church in the real world, page 49. I want to think about some of the challenges we then face in being God's church in the world. And they're actually challenges that come about directly from who we are by God's grace as the church. So, for example, first, we're called by Jesus to be a confessing church. That is where to be the pillar, the bulwark of the truth, as we saw the other night from 1 Timothy 3.15. But there are all sorts of dangers for us here. Right? So instead of being the confessing church, which holds up the truth which defends the truth by its words and by its life, we can slide away, we can fall away in all sorts of other alternatives that end up denying who we've been called to be. So instead of being the confessing church, we end up, say, being the counterfeit church. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, there on your page. Paul says, you must understand this. That in the last days, distressing times will come. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God holding to the outward form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid them. Now, you read that list right in the middle, and you think, he's, surely he's talking about people who are, you know, out in the world, who don't, who don't claim to be Christians. But then you get to the, towards the end there, and he, verse 3, holding to the outward form of godliness. That is, he's talking about people who claim to be Christians. The church here, in this picture, holds to the outward form of godliness. It looks like the church, but in its life, it denies God's power. How? 
because it doesn't actually live the truth. Instead of being God's people of singular worship, we become lovers of ourselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. We become involved in all manner of ungodliness rather than being lovers of God. We're still there at church and it's still looking like church. The name of Jesus is still being said, but like the Pharisees in the Gospels, our churches, our church life is like a whitewashed tomb. A tomb, you know, painted nice and white, gleaming. We're gleaming on the outside. But when you dig beneath, there's the stench of death. There's no love for God because we're in love with the world. We slide away from being the confessing church to being the counterfeit church. We can also slide away from being the confessing church to become the craving church. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. Paul writes, For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but they have, will have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander away to myths. It's really easy to become dissatisfied with God's truth, as crazy as that sounds. It, it can, can become the case where it just becomes no longer enough for us. Or God's truth becomes too uncomfortable for us, too convicting, too challenging. We don't want to hear that anymore. And so we look for a church, or even a church might look for a preacher, who will tell us what we want to hear. A more comfortable message, a more attractive message. So we seek out the teaching for which our ears itch, that we'll find more entertaining, more to our liking, but actually it's less true. So we turn away from listening to the truth and we wander, he says, away to myths. But that way, wandering away from the truth, as attractive, as exciting as it might appear, wandering away to this brand new teaching. It is only the way to death. Because apart from the truth, apart from the word of Christ, there is no life. So we can wander away and become the craving church. But there are other dangers here too. We can become the cloistered church where instead of being the community of Christ that holds up the truth for the world to see and proclaims the truth to the world in our words and in our life, instead we put up walls and we just speak to ourselves. We, we become cloistered, hemmed in. We don't engage with the world. Well, that is not the confessing church, right? A church that doesn't engage the world is not being a pillar of God's truth. It's not being an inviting, adventurous colony. The church becomes a fearful, a cosy little club. But if we don't proclaim Christ in our words and in our life as his body, then we actually don't honour Christ. We're a gathering community Mission is in our DNA. We must not become a cloistered church. 
We exist for the world. But, and flowing from this, there's also another danger that we slide away from the being the confessing church to become the incomprehensible church. We are the church in the world and for the world. It's not going to help our proclamation to the world if we are incomprehensible to the world, if they can't understand us. We need to proclaim the truth of God in comprehensible ways for our culture. We need to engage with our culture but without compromising the very truth that we are defending and holding up. Now, that's not easy. We want to engage with the culture and transform the culture and not be transformed by the culture, infected by worldly culture. That requires great wisdom. So that's thinking about what it means to be the confessing church and some challenges that arise in that. But also we are to be the suffering church. The suffering church. Look there on your page, Matthew chapter 10, 16 to 22. Jesus says, See, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves. Okay, that doesn't sound like a very attractive prospect. Being sent out like a sheep, oh, that's nice. Amongst wolves, not so nice. (laughs) So Jesus says, that's the reality. So he says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That is, understand the reality into which you're going. Be wise, but be innocent. Don't be compromised. Be holy. Verse 17, beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is speaking about the reality that his church will be a suffering church. And I don't mean suffering just in the way that all of humanity suffers under the, the curse of our sin in, in, uh, under the created order. We all suffer the pain of sickness and of illness and of death because of sin. The particular suffering he's talking about here is persecution because you're a Christian. Now, if you are a Christian who's grown up in Australia, from um, maybe a a European or an Anglo sort of background, the chances are you don't really, you probably have never experienced much persecution. You might have. 
And I want to respect that. But for many of us, we haven't really. I mean, there was that time that I sort of got teased by a friend because I went to church. Oh, the great persecution I endure. (laughs) No, I don't want to make too light of that in a way, though I just did. Because, hey, that, that fits with this, right? That, that's, that fits exa- what Jesus is talking about. I tell you, it's, it's, by God's grace, it's very light, isn't it? Compared to what our brothers and sisters around the world experience even today. Imprisoned for their faith. Oppressed because of their faith. Experiencing um, prejudice against them because they are Christians and this is, the, this is the, the lot of millions of our brothers and sisters around the world today, today. By God's grace and mercy we get it very light. Now the thing is there's other brothers and sisters here who because of uh, maybe they have come to faith out of a different cultural background or out of a different religious background, maybe you've come to Christ from Islam, maybe you've come to um, a living faith in the Lord Jesus from um, a particular ethnic community. Maybe you, you've come to have a greater faith in Jesus out of an orthodox, not so much an orthodox faith, but an, ortho, like a, an orthodox church, um, ethnic culture. What I mean is that in many cultures, like um, Jeff has been talking to us about Malta, Going to church is not a matter of faith, it's just a matter of your Maltese. And when you say, as Jeff told us, you know, I've actually come to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now I want to gather with, with people who, who have that same living faith, and then your culture, your family go, they cut you off. And there's brothers and sisters here who know that because that's their experience. They have lost father and mother and brothers and sisters for the sake of Christ. And there's brothers and sisters here who have come to us from different countries around the world and may well return to those countries and know, you know, if I commit my lot to Jesus, that will be what will happen to me. Jesus says, yes, I send you out as sheep among wolves. And they will flog you. They will hand you over to councils. And everyone will hate you because of my name. We are to be a suffering church because we follow the Lord Jesus who suffered for us. But did you note the encouragement that Jesus gives, even in the face of this this harsh situation. What does he say there? Verse 19, when they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. He's saying, at that moment when you are called upon to testify, to stand firm for my name, do not fear. My spirit that dwells within you will empower you to speak, to testify. Do not be afraid. You can stand firm. 
So friend, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to testify when they put their accusations against you. And I guess if that's true for those who are facing this sort of full-on persecution for their faith, and we live in such luxury at Sydney University where no, like really, no, I don't think we re- really receive any of much perse- persecution. Why are we so fearful? So there's an encouragement now for those who are being persecuted because the Holy Spirit will empower them to testify at that very moment. But there's also an encouragement for the future, for the end, right there at the very last last sentence, the end of verse 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What will enable you to endure persecution, even to the point of they might take your life, is you have a certain secure future. There is no doubt. You know that it is resurrection. It is life eternal in the presence of God, seeing Jesus face to face. The one who endures, who perseveres to the end, will be saved. So we are to be a suffering church. And the temptation is that so easily we actually slide out of that and we want to either become super church or sell-out church. So sell-out church is where we go, ah, the world is against us, the world hates us, we better become a bit more attractive to the world. A little bit more, hey, yeah, no, it's okay, we're a little bit more cool, we're a bit more, you know, interesting, and you shouldn't be against us because, you know, hey, we sell out. We accommodate to the world so they won't hate us as much. Why, do we, why would we do that? Because we don't want to suffer. We just really, I mean, who wants to suffer? No one wants to suffer. Do you think Jesus wanted to suffer? Do you actually think he was some sort of masochist? No. The night before, he, well, as, just before he's arrested, he's in the garden with tears. Why? Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. He doesn't want to suffer. I don't want to suffer. You don't want to suffer. But we must not, therefore, sell out. We must rather take the encouragement that he gives, that we might endure to the end and be saved. So don't become sell-out church. At the same time, don't become oh, super church. This is actually where what we want, right, because we don't want to suffer, what we want is we want triumphal church. We want the church of victory. We want the church that escapes the suffering and the pain. And so what we actually do is, in our teaching, we actually bring the promised future. We try to claim that for the now. So that somehow we might not have to be this suffering church, but become the victorious church, the, the triumphal church, the church that experiences the great blessings of God in the present. But I think the danger of that is we have, we have confused the future, the great promised future with the now. There are great promises for the now in the Scriptures, in the New Testament. We need, to, we need to grab hold of those and like the promise right there that when you're at that moment of pressure, 
the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak, so speak. Like there's a promise for the now. But the promise that somehow you, God doesn't want you to suffer. He wants to bless you now. And so just have faith in him and he will bless you. It just doesn't seem to fit with the, with the picture in the New Testament, the overwhelming picture of, yes, God wants to bless you, but he blesses you with strength to persevere in the midst of suffering. And, and so you have great joy even in the midst of the pain of suffering. Don't confuse the future with the present. We're not super church. He shows his great power in our weakness, in even our suffering for his name. And finally, we're to be the worshipping church. I've talked a lot about that this week, really. We're to be the church of singular worship, dedicated to serving and loving God alone. And the danger is always that we slip out of being a worshipping church to becoming the worldly church. Uh, Paul had to address this with the Corinthians. He says, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? See how in our church life we can so easily descend into worldliness? It may not be that you've set up some sort of drum kit at the front of the stage that we worship drums. Not that we do that, by the way, but just, just, I was latching for an illustration. It's not that you have explicitly set up other idols that you're worshipping, but you see, in the very way that you carry on out your life together, with your quarrelling and your fighting, you show you're worldly, not worshipping. We have to be the worshipping church, not the worldly church. So let's jump forward to the end, over the page. The end of the church. The end of the church never comes. There is no end to the church. The church goes on for all of glorious eternity. There is no end to the church. But I guess we can talk about the word end in that other way and talk about sort of the end as in the goal, can't we? The goal of the church, the the, the end to which God is bringing his church. And here's this wonderful picture from Revelation chapters 21 and 22. I'm going to read this out with minimal sort of comment. Just to give you, this is a great picture that God provides. It's a picture, right? So you just get a sense of it. Let God's word build this picture for you. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
Now, already there you've got a, a whole bunch of images, haven't you, right? The holy city, the new Jerusalem, and I'm thinking, okay, so there's sort of like, in my head, I have like a walled city, you know, like a picture of a city coming down, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. Okay, so now it's a city with wearing a veil <laughs> and a wedding dress. That's looking a bit crazy. But actually, you know, it's not, it's not a city and it's not a wedding dress, is it? Who's the holy city? Who's the new Jerusalem? It's the church. Because who's the bride of Christ? Who's the one that Christ loves like a husband loves his wife? It's the church. It's us. What's coming down of heaven here is, uh, is the church. The holy city. The new Jerusalem. That's us. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne says, See, I am making all things new. Heard someone once uh, reflecting on this passage and made a very helpful observation, which has stayed with me. He said, What is the one thing? The one thing only that God's people bring into the new creation, the new heavens and the earth. The only thing we bring are our tears and God wipes them away. He wipes away the tears from our eyes and says there is no more pain, no more crying, No more mourning, no more death. The former things have passed away now. Also, he said to me, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life to those who conquer those who conquer will inherit these things and I will be their God and they will be my children but as for the cowardly the faithless the polluted the murderers the fornicators the sorcerers the idolaters all liars Their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Here's the terrible reality for those without faith. Yes, it's portrayed for us in picture language, a a lake of fire and sulfur. It's picture language, but it speaks... Like the picture of, of the, the holy city descending, you know, dressed as a bride. It speaks of a, a reality. In this case, a terrible 
fearsome reality that is the destiny of everyone, every single one, who will not put faith in Jesus, who is the only Saviour. Verse 9, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. This is a picture of the people of God, the church. It has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper clear as crystal. And we keep going in uh, verse 22 of that chapter. John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's no temple in which God sort of symbolically has His presence dwell. No need for one, because God's right there, in the very midst, with His Son, the Lamb of God, Jesus. He says, The city, therefore, had no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Can you, I mean, you know, if, if you've ever sort of looked at the city, a cityscape like the city of Sydney, you've looked at it, you know, from a bit of a distance and the sun's streaming down, you think, wow, you know. If you take away the sun, you know, it would be in darkness. But with the sun there, you see it. You imagine looking at the city and the light coming from the centre of the city was so extreme that it eclipsed the sun. He's saying there was no need for a sun, no need for a moon. The glory of God in the centre of the city, that... I hope Jesus gave him sunglasses, because that would be very damaging for one's eyesight to see that. <laughs> and he says there, verse 24, the nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there'll be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life. Right, what's the tree of life? Well, let's that, go back to right back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, or chapter 2 and chapter 3. There's two trees there in the garden. One, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God said, you must not eat of that tree to Adam and Eve. The other one, the tree of life, which by eating of that tree, Adam and Eve were to live forever. It was the tree that gave, gave them eternal life. When they eat of the tree that they shouldn't eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says, Right, you, you're now, for your own good, you are excluded from eating of the other tree so that you might not live forever in sin. So you're excluded from the tree of life. That's the great tragedy of being excluded from the Garden of Eden. No access back to the tree of life. 
What's the picture here? There's two trees of life. There's two of them on either side of the river. Heaps of access to the tree of life for the people of God. With its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What does that mean? What's the healing of the nations? Well, it's the healing of healing from death, which the tree of life heals you from, gives you eternal life. It's picture language, right? But it's telling you profound truths about the end to which God is taking us. Verse 3, nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They have no, no need of light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's a picture of the end of the church. It's a picture of life in the ever-bright light. Life in the ever-bright light of the Lord and the Lamb. That's the picture. What a great and glorious end. Do you reckon that will be awesome, church? Oh, yeah, I think so. Like, how blessed it is to be meet in fellowship together, whether large or small, now in the power of His Spirit, with the blessing of His Word. How, how great is that, and how even more glorious will that day be when Christ's church universal are gathered together, perfected, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, with no st- spot or blemish because of the profound and transforming work of Christ and the transforming work of His Spirit. What a great and glo- Do you long for that day? Do you wish it would be today? Do you wish that it would be soon? And our hearts say, yes. But please, Lord, wait a bit longer so that the lost might come to faith and be saved and join with us. Isn't that, isn't that our heart? Yes, we long for it, but... But Lord, thank you for your patience that more might join and be saved. So in the meantime, in the meantime, as we long for that day, do not give up meeting together. Don't give up meeting together. Don't just say, well, by God's grace, I have faith in Jesus, I am part of his church, which is true. So I'll just do my thing and I'll keep loving Jesus and I mean the actual gathering of in a church is a bit, you know, no, the message in the New Testament is in light of all these truths, don't give up meeting together. So Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, right, that's looking forward to the end, let us hold fast to that confession of our hope without wavering for he who has promised is faithful And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We're to, in the meantime, while we wait for that, hold on to that great hope, we're to provoke each other to, did you notice that, love and good deeds, holiness really. Why, why are we to provoke each other to that? Well, it's because we love one another. I love you, I want you to be the holy person God has created you to be. I want to provoke you, you know, poke, poke you a bit. I mean, I can do it with my finger. Love people. Do good deeds. More helpful is if I poke you with this. <laughs> Love people. Do good deeds for Christ's name. It's speaking the truth in love, isn't it? Another way of saying that same thing. That we might grow to maturity in Christ. But to do that, we need to meet together. We need to gather together so that we might encourage each other. And, you know, encouragement, when it says encouragement there, you know, the way we normally do encouragement is, um, and I, you know, hey, high five, whoo, yeah. Be encouraged. <laughs> now, I, think, I love the high five thing because it's friendly, right? It's, it's good to be friendly. Uh, but friendly, you know, I can go to, the Chocolate Society at Sydney Uni, and they might be friendly to me. You know, friendliness is good, but it's, you know, we can, we're a bit more than that, aren't we? <laughs> so, yeah, high five, but that's, I don't think that's quite the encouragement, you know? Uh, or, or I think encouragement is more than just, hey, that was really good what you did, cool, thanks. I mean, that, it's nice. No, what's the encouragement here? What is it? It's the encouragement from the word, right, towards love and good deeds. He's saying the same thing again. Encourage each other. Keep going in the Lord. Persevere faithfully. Throw off that sin that clings so close. How can I pray for you? What, what, what's your struggle at the moment? Like, is there something I can pray for you this week? You know, encourage each other to be the church. And the fascinating thing, I think there in verse 25, is we're to do it more and more, all the more because the day is getting closer. See, I would sort of think... Well, if the day's coming closer, um, it's not so critical to be meeting together because the day's getting closer, which frankly just should do a heck of a lot more evangelism, shouldn't we? Now, that's always, the, that's always falling into that trap of, of saying it's this or that, which is just not scriptural. I just, that's not the picture of the church. As we grow together, we grow up and out. As we grow in holiness, that's part of our very invitation that we speak with our word. Like, you know, they're, they're welded together, right? But he says, actually, as the day draws closer, keep encouraging each other to love and good deeds all the more. Why? Why do you have to do it more and more if the day is getting closer? What's... It's because if the day is coming closer and you need to persevere to the end, don't fall off the wagon now. Don't suddenly give up now if the day is drawing close. You've got to stay on the train. Stay part of the body, living the holy life. So all the more, it's, it's more important to keep meeting together as a result of this conference than it was before because the day's coming closer.
So don't give up meeting together. Be his church. Be his church. His church of gracious love. His church indwelt by his powerful spirit and the word of Christ. Be his church of worshipful response so that we can grow up, so that we can grow out to maturity in Christ, to the fullness of Christ, until that day when perfected and glorious by his grace, we see him who is our head, Jesus, face to face. Friend, you will see him. We live by faith now, not by sight, but we will see him. And he will say to you, to me, to all those who live by faith, his body, he will say, welcome into that which has been prepared for you. Welcome, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest and we will live forever with the Lord. Praise be to Him. Praise be to Him. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit and your Word, transform our hearts that we might be your holy, joyful, thankful people. Come, Lord Jesus. Come to this world that is your own. Claim it for your name. Renew it. Restore it. Bring the fullness of your kingdom. Wipe away our tears. Wipe away our pain. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.